In this episode, we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, a.k.a. The Next Generation. Leatherface has gone meta. Is this a slasher movie or a movie with a message about slasher movies? John and I discuss. In TCM4, there's no cannibalism. There's pizza. There's no slaughterhouse, but Grandpa's still there, and the Illuminati run the whole thing. And by the ending, Leatherface seems really, really lost. Can we find him? Will this franchise redeem itself. Come and find out. Hello, Brian. How are you? Um, just fine, John. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm good. Normally we start in the morning, but today uh, this is post hike. This is, yeah. uh, we just so, got done with our hike and now uh, kind of uh, unpacking our bags. Yeah. And as, as always, the search for campfire wood is a nightly occurrence, and I often think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I'm looking for campfire wood. How many are there of this franchise? Do you know? I think there's around eight. Are you considering these as logs on the fire? Some branches can be broken by hand, but sometimes you have to use my little handsaw. And while I don't have a chainsaw, sometimes I wish I did. I'm thinking of the ever-burning passion of... Uh... Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies as it relates to a, a fire that never ceases. Yeah, I'm surprised Leatherface and the whole Sawyer clan didn't do more camping, considering their love for sawing. And their love for cooked meats. Yeah, and presumably there would be isolated potential victims out on a trail like this. There's lots of, lots of prompts for TCM. Right, this could be a, a TCM on the Appalachian Trail subplot. Yeah. Movie number nine. Yeah, they're migrating. It's like an Oregon Trail versus cannibalistic families. But yeah, we watched uh, The Next Generation, a 1995 drip of this franchise. The fourth installment, I believe. Starring two famous actors, Renee Zellweger of, I'm not really sure what fame, and Matthew McConaughey of being Matthew McConaughey fame. I don't know what movies either of them outside of this have done, but I believe this was Either their first roles or their first semi-blockbuster roles? I believe it was one of their first roles. For Renee, this was filmed in 95. Mm -hmm. I believe her breakout picture was Jerry Maguire in 96. Straight from Texas Chainsaw to Jerry Maguire. I read something that this movie was released in 95, but then re-released under, under the current title, which is TCM The Next Generation. Originally, the 95 version was the return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was reading some reviews, and one of them proposed the theory that, like you said, Zellweger had done something that made her famous in the interim in 96, and then, I forget what, but McConaughey had done something bigger too. So it's kind of like they somebody bought this movie, and these actors became famous, and then they re-released it in 97, hoping for another you know run at the box office. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I um, yeah, just read it in a review. I don't know if it's true, but and I don't know what McConaughey did in 96. The first movie I remember him being in was Contact, 1997, which uh, was, yeah. at least it was big in my mind. I don't know if it actually was successful in the box office, but another, what, two years after, three years after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he finds success. And what else was going on in 95, 96? Let's see, uh, uh, 1995, we have... Smashing Pumpkins, releasing mm -hmm. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Those were the days. 
Oasis just released the single Wonderwall. Mm, that was and a uh, one-hit wonder. I don't think so. <laughs> I think they made well. I think they made a couple of singles and a couple of albums. But uh, okay, name, name another Oasis song. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure and, very good. Uh, Bill Clinton was in office there too. Oh, so. Okay. Yeah, and firmly I firmly grounded in 1994, 1995. Now, well, I also read that in terms of the horror movie genre, the Scream film came out just either before or just after this. Do you know? I think it's after, but that was a, a movie that mocks. I haven't actually. I don't think I've seen Scream. Put it um, in the queue. Maybe tonight, <laughs> but it apparently mocks the horror movie genre. And there was this very complex defense of TCM4 claiming that it too was engaging in this meta mockery of the horror movie genre, which we can go into that later. But the, hmm. the reviewer who advanced this argument put it in the context that Scream had done the same thing and that both movies were trying to say something along the lines of slasher movies in particular, which I think is a subgenre of horror movies, have fallen off and are no longer scary and are, and are worthy of mock and so mm. on. So I can I can give you the bare bones of that argument now or later. Scream came out in 96, so timeline's accurate. And guess who directed that? Wes Craven. Wes Craven. Good old... I feel like we have all these friends that just come and visit us in these conversations. Wes Craven is there, and Daniel Cronenberg appears all the time, and mm -hmm. Leatherface pops in <laughs> quite often, it seems. Yeah, they're, they're on the trail with us, so to speak. Yeah, there's no... Uh, I forget about him. <laughs> I'd like to hear this argument. Uh, well, I didn't. I didn't yeah. feel it fit within the mockery, but I'm open to opinion. I didn't find the argument personally convincing, but basically, it says that the movie is intentionally making fun of itself. Leatherface is is just ineffective. You know, he doesn't. I don't think he kills anyone throughout the whole movie. In the chase scenes, you know, he. He doesn't run very spiritedly, doesn't catch anyone. And, and, and then another argument that was advanced in this review was that by dressing as a woman and wearing makeup, Leatherface doing that is meant to suggest that, you know, demasculation or emasculation or whatever the word is of, of his ability to be a slasher terror figure and, and so on. And um, that's an interesting argument. Yeah, there's an impotence to him. Yeah, it, it makes all these points about horror and comedy being two sides of the same coin. The masculating of Leatherface by fully embracing him as a drag queen while painting his lips. This argument closes with the ending, which maybe we can talk about now or, or save for later. But the guy, the yeah, the Illuminati guy, his name is Rothman. In the final scene when he's in the limo with Jenny... That is Renee Selweger's character. He says, he said, sorry, he basically apologizes to Jenny about how messy <laughs> this whole experience was. He says it was an abomination and, quote, it was supposed to be a spiritual experience, end quote. And so this reviewer cites that scene and maybe Rothman is meant to be like a movie executive or a writer, director of horror movies in this meta understanding of this film. And he's apologizing to the audience who have just endured this 87-minute experience. And it was intentionally not scary and intolerable and an abomination in order to critique 
the slasher subgenre of horror films. And I, pers- I, <laughs> That's I, amazing. I, I, I like it. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't, I don't believe, I just don't find arguments about movies or books in that framed in that way. Very convincing just broadly. Maybe it's true that an entire movie will take a step back from the purpose of the movie, which is to be terrifying and to give the audience a thrill in order to comment on the whole genre of, of which it is a member that, that assumes a lot of, interest and background information in the audience member. And it, it seems like an incredible gamble. To, why would you make a, a poor movie, which is going to do badly at the box office in order to make this heavily cloaked indecipherable, except by one argument about the state of the horror movie genre. Why not just write an article or, or something <laughs> like that? Like it's, it's, I don't, the whole idea of like art productions being intentionally meta to, to, say something about art i just i don't know i don't find that very convincing i can send the article though when we get home (laughs) (laughs) yeah please Uh, i think that well scream as a alternate view of this does kind of mock the genre but doesn't do it in a way that it needs to produce a crappy film and then reflect back on the crappy film that they've created and said yep this is what represents the genre at this point is this crappy film I made? So is right. that kind of, yeah. So, well, I think scream be... has, again, I haven't seen scream, but I think scream has some merits on its own. It stands on its own as a entertaining or a scary or a, whatever it is kind of movie. In addition to this potential meta comment about the nature of horror movies. Whereas according to this guy, this movie intentionally sinks itself to, to comedic levels, intentionally bores the audience, intentionally presents Leatherface as, ineffective and slow and inept with the chainsaw in order to make its meta point. And I just don't find that possible. I I have a theory on the movie or its intention. I personally didn't find it boring. I actually, and this might be surprising both for you and maybe all the critics that say this is one of the worst movies within the franchise series, but (laughs) I found this to be thoroughly entertaining. And uh, What what did you Give me the highlights. What was entertaining? Well, maybe we should do a little plot summary. I, I'm not a big fan of the plot summary. I've, I've mentioned this before, but it, it helps, I think, to kind of ground each other and our massive viewership or yeah. uh, listenership as well. So, oh, Are where you do taking we start? Yeah. Uh, man. Well, it starts with prom, prom night. Yeah, it does. It starts with prom night. There are a few characters that are partying and there's some some sort of disagreements between couples and then they take off in a vehicle take a strange path a car comes screaming out of what seems to be the woods knocks into them and that kind of interrupts their journey home and from there the adventure starts where the texas chainsaw massacre family which is a completely different set of people who don't appear to be cannibals or hilljacks well i guess they're kind of a little bit in the hills but they seem more sophisticated, one could say. I, I I didn't detect one bite of cannibalism. There was the scene where where Vilmer, McConaughey's character, leans over Heather, the other, the not Renee Zellweger young lady, and kisses her and comes up with blood on his mouth. So there's some kind of biting of her. But then, does she have an injury? Yeah, later on her her face is bleeding in the dinner scene. So that doesn't seem there's no yeah but at the dinner scene there's no cannibalism and there's also no mention of the word sawyer the old the old uh, the name of the family in the previous three movies that's true yeah good point yeah so this is another 
completely different family. It's I don't not think cle- it's completely different though, because Grandpa is there. Grandpa's there. There is an old man there. There's an old man there. So the the members of the family still exist, but as a traditional family, a grandfather would be present in many families. Mm-hmm. So there's a mirroring of a atomic family, but uh, nuclear, nuclear family. I think the term is. Well, I have trouble with that word. So oh, okay, atomic. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I think the mirror of the typical family is outweighed by the replication of the Sawyer family. But and so then this high school group then interacts with the main lead. So Vilmer comes out. That's Matthew McConaughey's role. And uh, they interact with him. Driving a tow truck is not as helpful as they would have liked. No. And so they escape him, run into what seems to be a trailer where there's a lady there doing business. Not sure what business she's doing. (laughs) Kind of look like a, I don't know. Yeah. A real estate agent. She was dressed in a business dress a uh, business outfit mm-hmm. yeah and yeah but I, don't, I, I couldn't tell what she did either they believe she is their savior find out later that she's also part of the clan the group is tormented by this new group of family members the heavier hand lies in matthew mcconaughey's character where he just goes completely off the <laughs> deep end with all members even members of his family, he knocks one over the head with a hammer, also <laughs> brutalizes the other members of the teenage group. Very violent family. Nobody nobody gets along. Yeah, and I, I got the impression that Darla is her name. She's the the woman in the business dress. She is a new addition to the family. Did you get that impression? I think that there's such a separation from the Sawyer family to this family that I I think that it's not even worth doing the comparison. I I maybe I'm I don't want to totally discount that as a thread of continuity from the first movie, but there's so much difference. And although in the text scroll at the beginning it does sort of suggest that these are connected events in sequence, but no one from the original movie seems to show up in this movie. I don't know mm-hmm. if you felt the same way. No, I did. Absolutely. There's the only unifying factors are that it's still Texas. There's still a guy called Leatherface. There's still a chainsaw. There's still dinner and there's still a grandpa, but there's no cannibalism. <laughs> there's no reference to the name Sawyer. There's nothing about working in a slaughterhouse or having worked in a slaughterhouse. Yeah. No, no clear line of descent from any of the previous family members to these current individuals. Yeah, the slaughterhouse piece is absent, as you said. There's Vilmer and a guy they called W.E., who seems to be his brother. And then Darla is a girlfriend of Vilmer. She says at one point that she had left her husband and and that she could theoretically still go back to her husband. Mm -hmm. And then there's Leatherface, who I think is the third brother. But I think in the third one, there was a, a daughter and a mom and... And a grandma, and yeah, there's been a lot of familial turmoil. I don't know if this is, um, like Leatherface has to be, he's the only consistent character, so it makes sense that they, all four movies would be the same family, but there's not enough time in between them. Like, this is all explained in the openings text scroll. It's only, it's only been like 20 years. It can't have been a complete generational turnover. Leatherface would be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. Yeah. So it does kind of allude that this is the the next grouping. You know, this is the 
one of the that actually wouldn't be a bad idea if there was a one of the Sawyer members had a child and that was Matthew Mahoney. And what did you make of W.E., the the other brother, all his quoting of Voltaire and, and Ralph, Waldo, <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson? And every word he uttered, I think, was a quote from some literary figure or philosopher. Yeah, I thought that was funny. And the was... critic that I mentioned who weaves this big meta argument proposes that that character and, and those quotations are meant to further undermine the movie by, you know, this guy's just saying stuff that other people have said. This movie is just making fun of other horror movies. And I don't know, outside of that meta argument, I can't think of any reason why that character needs to be there. He's just kind of an irritant to Vilmer and somebody to somebody to punch. I'm thinking of like the hitchhiker character in the first one or the crop chop top in the second one, or the third <laughs> one. <laughs> you know, he engages in in the in the corralling of victims, but. I guess this guy does. Yeah, he he comes to the real estate office with the plastic bag and throws Renee Zellweger into the trunk. So never mind. He's just a he's just a lackey, maybe. I appreciate that that reviewer or article writer sees these as intentional, as W. E. is somehow by reciting dead philosophers or old ideas and incorporating them as his own that they're just repeating a, a, a tired subject matter. But in the moment, I didn't really get that as an idea not to su- well, I guess it doesn't even matter what I thought in the moment. After I've heard this argument, it still doesn't really hold weight to me. So no. it's, not, it's not that I missed it. It's just that in hearing it, it doesn't seem to hold weight. I think the most novel twist in this iteration of the franchise is the ending. I didn't know quite what to make of it, but I can run through the basic details. Yeah, please. In the middle of the dinner scene, uh, a man shows up at the door. His name is Rothman, and he has a a driver wearing a a chauffeur's hat behind him. And he basically starts criticizing Vilmer for not creating enough horror. I'm quoting a few lines of Rothman. He says, I want these people to know the, the meaning of horror. You don't want to be a silly boy. Is that clear? This is all to Vilmer. Uh, so this obviously fits well into that argument about this movie being a meta critique of the horror genre. And then uh, Heather, the other teenage girl, gets her head stomped in by Vilmer at that point. So so Vilmer seems to have amped up the, the tempo of his slayings. And then after he after Vilmer stomps Heather's head in with his mechanical leg thing, which we haven't talked about yet either, uh, Vilmer starts self-mutilating and screaming. He starts cutting his chest open with a knife. Mm-hmm. And then there's a big fight between Jenny and Vilmer, each holding a remote control that powers his leg. So they have a fight of sort of pausing and unpausing his mechanical leg. And then she runs away and gets out of the house. And it's morning now. And she flags down an RV driven by this old couple. Right. And the RV overturns. And then Vilmer and Leatherface show up in the tow truck. And so she's back on foot running from the two of them who are also on foot. And then this airplane, this, this um, <laughs> what do you call those, uh, propeller-driven airplane, just a little single-seat thing. It's flying over like a crop duster or something. I don't know. But then it swoops down. So you got Renee Zellweger in the front, Vilmer, and then Leatherface coming in at third. The airplane very precisely flies down to intercept and, and chop up Vilmer, the middle of the trio, uh-huh. Leatherface becomes greatly distressed at that point, clearly in mourning, and the rest of the rest of the scene, he's just 
twirling his chainsaw around in the field sort of meaninglessly. And then the limo shows up with Rothman in it again. And Jenny climbs in, realizes it's Rothman. And then Rothman does his apology. This is an abomination. This was supposed to be a spiritual experience. And then in the final scene, Jenny is in a mental ward, I think, with a policeman who's trying to reassure her. And then some lady gets wheeled by lying down on a gurney and they make significant eye contact, but it's not clear who she is. And then, and then it fades to black. So the appearance of Rothman makes sense in the plot, in the interior plot of the movie, because Vilmer believes that he is working for some secretive, they don't think they ever say the word Illuminati, but it's some organization. Darla, while talking to Jenny at one point, says something along these lines that Vilmer works for a secret group. This group has been active for 1000 or 2000 years. This is a quote from Darla to Jenny. You know how you hear these stories about these people who run everything, but nobody knows who they are. And that's, that's the group that Vilmer works for. They're the ones that killed Kennedy, for example. And there's another scene where Vilmer says something about how the house is under 24 hour FBI surveillance and there's bugs in the walls. There's auto auditory recording equipment in the walls. So all of it fits the Rothman thing being, being the boss or the, the boss of Vilmer, a member of this group makes sense. But the conclusion then is we're meant to think of the whole sequence of 30 years of these killings in Texas, having been the work of this group, the Illuminati, if you want to call them that. And therefore this series of Texas chainsaw massacres is a project on the same scale of, as the assassination of Kennedy or the fake moon landings or whatever else people conspiratorially ascribe to groups like this. That's either a lot of firewood, so to speak for the movie as meta message about horror movies angle, or it's something else entirely just a weird thing we need to figure out about where this director is taking this this story wow that's impressive well, you know. you're the illuminati of texas chainsaw massacre movies i don't even know what the are the illuminati are, are those the stone masons the masons are, i mean i don't know when people say the word doesn't that come from the what are those books called the uh robert brown the you know what i'm talking about with the vatican and stuff I oh you mean uh, Dan Brown the uh, Dan Brown yeah what are the yeah. books called what is that what? National Treasure is that the like <laughs> my uh, conspiracy movies mixed up well, I don't know if the Illuminati is just from that book or if it's if it's a larger historical thing like the free, the Freemasons actually are a thing they're just not doing what idiots think they're doing so it's it's I don't I just don't know where that term uh, yeah the term Illuminati I'm pretty sure was not mentioned in the movie but well, it was, the, there was in a review on the door of the tow truck it was called illuminati towing oh, no way. really <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but uh wow yeah i'm not really totally well, familiar then there's that whole thing with vilmer always being upset with like all those lights on the truck and lights go in weird directions totally so i do think that there's space for those arguments to be inserted in the movie maybe more than i gave it credit for originally i don't really know the illuminati story or plot line or kind of a thread as to What's the reason and rationale behind it? Even in referencing you as the Illuminati as it relates to these movies, I don't even know if I'm using that term correctly. But uh, but to my knowledge, it's a group of people that are pulling the strings underneath, not necessarily of reality, but what people see on the surface. So if you just look slightly below the surface, you see a, 
orchestrated systemic organization or organizing group that is trying to take control of the world entirely. It's beyond just nation building or different countries, but it's like a global phenomenon of individuals who are puppeteering people for their own good to create some new world order of sorts. That's kind of my rough understanding of it. But does that sound anywhere near your guess of it? Yeah. I mean, I a vague idea that there's a non-governmental group of ultra-rich or ultra-aristocratic, somehow powerful families, dynastic families that somehow, yeah, control control the government or are in the government as representatives of duly elected representatives, but actually do the bulk of their productive work through the mechanisms of the Illuminati, not through the mechanisms of actual government. It just lends itself to any hypotheses about the way things work in in the world. I want another way if I don't like this thing about the movie being a meta message about horror. So I, since I don't like that, I need another way to interpret Rothman and his thing about who are these people when he says to Vilmer, I want these people to know the meaning of horror. And why does he apologize to Renee and say it was supposed to be a spiritual experience? Mm. That's what I need to, to reject the PCM for is a meta critique of the horror slasher subgenre angle. Okay. Well, here's an option that instead of this group being a group, a bunch of cannibals that they are through terrorizing individuals or kidnapping people, that there's a greater spiritual event that occurs through this shocking uh, experience or that they believe there's a quality in killing people, not for consumption, but to release their spirit or to have some otherworldly experience. And that was why Rothman has either teamed with this family or as part of this family is because we're not here to kill, slaughter, and cook. We're here to bring people together and, and have a fantastical experience and push the limits of humanity. And through this, we'll have a spiritual experience and otherworldly experience. And that's our fundamental motivation for doing all this stuff. And so then this gets sideways or sidetracked with, and that this gets sidetracked with Vilmer who takes it upon himself as a, maybe an egoist to make this about him. And then he starts destroying this process that Rothman has been trying to build. And then Rothman then has to apologize and say, Hey, I'm sorry about Vilmer. He is so self-involved that he's made this whole experience about him, but it's not, it's about a bigger spiritual motivation. And that's why we're skinning people and kidnapping them. And I don't know, terrorizing them. Is that, yeah, I mean, is that a substitute or maybe even, gives more explanation to the purpose of the movie beyond a self meta criticism. Not in a satisfying way. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if, if the whole production Renee's evening, Jenny's evening was meant to be ultimately for Jenny's benefit, it was going to, it was going to end in her death, but it, at least it was going to be a spiritual, whatever that means, mm -hmm. a spiritual death. 
involving lots of scariness and and whatnot, then it it was a service to Jenny. That's the way that Rothman phrases it, and and he apologizes for failing to serve her in the way that was intended. The fact that she survives the whole thing is a failure of the process, according to Rothman. Mm. And that thing you said about Vilmer, I don't think he's trying to. I don't see him trying to take over and make make the it about him so much as. He says a lot. There's a lot of dialogue that I, I don't have written down or anything, but he, a, a lot of lines of his are like, you think I'm just going to kill you? Or do you think you know what's coming? Or what do you think I'm going to do to you? And do you remember like all those scenes? So I think he's got this idea that something, maybe maybe Rothman even needs to show up and get involved somehow, but there's going to be some experience that he's going to do to her, which will, which is the checklist, the process that, the Illuminati want for Jenny to experience before her death. Mm-hmm. He's sort of mocking her at the time for thinking that it's just going to be like a knife in the, just a slit throat or something. And, and so that dialogue sort of fits in with what you were saying about Vilmer. I think Rothman is when he shows up, he's critiquing Vilmer for being silly. He says the word silly over and over again. So there's something about Vilmer's behavior that is not serious enough for Rothman's satisfaction. How does he even know what's going on? Rothman must have audio recording equipment on the walls because he just shows up randomly. It's sort of like, you know that phrase Deus Ex Machina, the, the god from the machine? It's um it's a, a plot it's a plot device used in plays and any kind of story where the writers and the actors can't make the move can't make the can't make the story end without having a div, a divinity show up and, and tell everybody how it is and hmm. It has a bad reputation as a sort of a, a, a cop-out of, of a story, but I, I just thought of that term. I don't know if that's worth, if that's uh, at, at play here either, but yeah, like how does Rothman know that the evening is not going well <laughs> in the first place? Right. Well, yeah, that would, that would play into this, that would fit into the motivation of Darla, who's saying that Vilmer has things implanted in her mind and yeah. d- despite what seems to be a chaotic experience that he has control over everything. And like when, when Jenny pulled out the shotgun, that uh, mindset came up where Darla was saying, Oh, if he wants that shotgun to be shot, it will be shot. You don't have an ability to control the fate. And that could be an interwebbing to this as it builds up to Rothman showing up where he's the big puppeteer who knows all these things and even knows more than Vilmer does and the other Texas Chainsaw Massacre families are also under this umbrella that Rothman controls or has abilities to have uh, future knowledge of or present knowledge of. It kind of actually reminds me of, uh, remember Castle Freak 2020? Yes. At the end where there's this this creature that controls both present and past and is a predictive element, but also an influencing element. I, I don't know if I'm recreating that accurately, but that, that was kind of the feeling I got from the ending of Castle Freak 2020. In that movie, it was a, a demon, a, a, a god of, of the Lovecraftian cosmology, right? Yeah, and what? but it kind of had the same, not necessarily motivations, but it, it sort of had the same abilities or the same influencing qualities, the same... Ability to puppeteer and, and know ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. This movie had more than I gave credit to if we're endorsing all these ideas, which to some degree we have to for 
Rothman's placement in the movie. I mean, he, he has to have a functional role and he does. And he comes in at the end to kind of sweep everything up and, and tie, tie a bow around it. And then the super ending, the ending ending where I can't tell if Jenny is going to be institutionalized or whether she's just in a hospital to get physical treatment, but she sees that woman being led down a hallway. Know who that was? No. Who, who was it? That was the final girl from the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So she is in a mental ward then. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, good point. It also says in the Wikipedia article that there's three appearances from the first movie, three cameo appearances of the <laughs> original members of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 74 in there, but I didn't recognize any of them. I didn't I, even recognize uh, the lady at the end on the gurney. I looked that up because I was like, no, you know, it's like, who the hell is this? Right. As if, yeah, I didn't recognize her. I did notice, I didn't notice this, but I, I looked up the cast photos and remember Franklin? The guy yeah, the, the guy in the wheelchair. Yeah. He is he is credited as hospital orderly, I believe. And mm. that must have been who Jenny was talking to in that final scene. But he looked very, he didn't look, he'd lost quite a bit of weight. I didn't make the connection. It was also 20 years later, so they looked completely different than they did. There's too much uh, age difference. Another thing I thought of with that, that further supports the idea that this is a meta movie is that there's a very long scene where Darla stops at a pizza place. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this laboring over the point that the family needs dinner and <laughs> dinner is going to be brought home. And, and so replacing the cannibalism angle where dinner would be these victims. Instead, she has to she's got Jenny in her trunk at that point, And then she runs across the other one, Heather, in the driveway <laughs> and, you know, it's sort of. Uh, has to has to has to get the get the pizza home for dinner and and there's another scene at the end where when Rothman is he criticizes Vilmer for being silly and and not generating horror and then he unbuttons his shirt and shows his weird tattoo and then he proceeds to lick lick Jenny's face and then before he leaves he picks up two slices of pizza off the ground and puts them back on the dinner table and then and then leaves so <laughs> Maybe that's further grist for this argument that the the pizza represents, you know, the way this movie is mocking itself by, you know, that we, we're not really going to kill these people. We, we're not as gory as the first three. And huh. we, we just brought in a pizza instead of instead and horror movies and slasher movies have lost their edge. All right. Well, that's further for this. That guy's argument. I, I would say that the reason why he picked up the pizza and at one point Darla is complaining about being knocked over by Vilmer was this idea that they still have social order. They still have a certain amount of decorum that they want to present and to see pizza slices on the ground. It's a core representation of themselves as a, as a family unit or as a (laughs) social group. And uh, for Darla to be knocked to the ground, it's with guests in it's defacing her in in the presence of guests. So. This director was a, co-writer of the original one maybe or kim kim henkel potentially holding a grudge towards this franchise or rather a grudge towards towards the subgenre of slasher movies in which this franchise is but there's clearly a you know it's not what's his face what was the original director Hoobie hooper yeah actually feels like you're getting caught up in this possible conspiracy 
at first you were like, I can't, I can't imagine a, a movie that's only built on creating a cut on its own face. And yeah, I guess and I, I would agree that, that like, I would guess that this guy, Kim Henkel, who wrote the movie, who also co-wrote the original movie is coming in and is trying to create a movie as best he can. I think he legitimately thought this was a good movie and I enjoyed it. So I celebrate the fact that he created it and I enjoyed watching it. He did his best. He didn't have like some message of, I will take, let's just say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I can't imagine it hit the million dollar mark, but who knows? I'll take all this money and get these uh, individuals to invest. And then secretly I'll make a movie that mocks the whole genre. And then at the end, I will, I will then display out my thesis on why I did this or the, the point of it. I think that the argument that this family is legitimately trying to create a spiritual experience as opposed to eating people. And the plot line was threaded through this Illuminati consideration that the world is being puppeteered by greater figures. And that's the motivation for the, the characters, although isn't, as you said, satisfying. I think it's more satisfying than to think that it's a self-criticism movie in, in its entirety. Yeah, I mean, this movie demands explanation in a way that the other three didn't. Just the strangeness of the ending and the deus ex machina thing that I mentioned. It's just very odd. I see what the person who advances this argument is basing it on. I just don't feel good about having watched the movie. If if it's just that, it feels like it feels underhanded of a movie to do that. You go into this movie thinking you're going to see some some good chainsawing and get to relive your teenage experience with watching the first or the second or the third one. And, and then instead you get this limp, strange. There's a couple of killings, but there's no. And there's some there's that, that chase scene actually with Leatherface chase, chasing Jenny was quite good where she runs through the swamps and into the house and up the stairs and out onto the roof. And then Leatherface chops down the chimney and and then Jenny jumps on a wire and then runs through the forest and goes to the office like that was and there was there was music playing during that time so there was there was a little bit of whatever people want out of a Texas chainsaw movie but I don't think Leatherface gets anyone and the the dialogue is strange and I don't to make a message about the genre is one thing but to do it at the at the expense of the, like comparing it to the to the scream movie, which again, it's not really a good argument because I haven't seen it. But does it does a message about the slasher genre have to come with the pill that the movie itself is a complete dud? Like, couldn't you have said something about slasher movies by making a great slasher movie? Yeah, I know. And I think that you're. I think that you're. The pill that has been swallowed is is the appreciation of this argument. I think it's an interesting <laughs> sort of approach. But I think that this guy tried to make the best movie he could. I don't think that he uh, made this in some tongue-in-cheek way. I do think that there's a little bit of humor in it, but not any more humor than part two or part three, although part three didn't have a lot of humor in it. And um, <laughs> yeah, and I think that the next generation viewpoint is we're not highlighting Leatherface as much as we did. We tried that for three movies. The first movie, it worked fine, but he was just a, a member of the rest of the family. We tried highlighting him in part two, highlighting him in part three. And we're like, this character just doesn't have 
the texture that's required to create a franchise. So the next generation is going to mm. be Vilmer, who is this crazy, insane dude who uh, can um, do whatever he wants and and make a show of it. Although he does get killed at the end, so that would make it tough for him to make a you know. It, it, although he he does get killed at the end, but I was kind of confused why he had this bionic leg. Maybe mm. that gave it an excuse that if he gets knocked out by this plane, they can make another bionic version of him or something like that. I felt that was probably the weakest part and strangest part of the movie that probably could be removed. But but I think the next generation is referencing that it's not Leatherface we're focusing on anymore. We're focusing on this new character who is the the delivery man for the Illuminati. That's the new <laughs> that's the new uh, character. That's the new generation. So, well, if if there's eight of these or more then we're roughly halfway through the franchise so we'll see if that reboot or refocus continues but i i wrote down during the movie this is a quote just from me i hope this franchise is a late bloomer because i've said this on several of the other when we probably on all three i mean i didn't i didn't know anything about the tcm movies before we started watching them and i was always afraid of horror movies when i was a kid uh, i never i never was allowed to watch horror movies and so watching these in a weird way is kind of like reassuring for me because i i think of that childhood version of myself who was kept away from movies like this and and developed this notion that they were somehow truly awful and and maybe they would have done something warping to my young boy's mind but the the you know, I so when we started watching Chainsaw, I was thinking it was going to be these classic, just fucked up, just people getting chainsawed and just unbelievable <laughs> gore and and just pushing the absolute edge or of either physical sort of makeup based horror or kind of psychological, a giant eight foot tall guy with a chainsaw in the middle of nowhere in Texas and there's cannibalism. <laughs> this, this writes itself. And four iterations in. It's been nothing but boring, absolutely boring, and just dull. And and I can count probably on one hand the number of people Leatherface has killed. It's just like this thing just refuses to launch, and I'm I don't know what's coming. But it's like it's the most absolutely flat franchise idea that I've ever uh, that I think I've ever seen. Wow. Well, I like how you share your feelings. I would say that the, there's some context to deliver in that. It's difficult for an individual to reflect how these movies might have experienced them as a younger person because you're, you know, approaching it with a, a lot more sophistication and, and wisdom and maturity than you would if you were 12 or 13. So these movies might have been quite terrifying, not to mention that they're, I don't know, 96. So this is 20 years old or something like that at this point. I don't know if I'm calculating that right, but. They're fairly old, so they, they don't, you know, they're not a contempt. I wouldn't put this in a contemporary horror, although it is on the fringe being in the you know, 90s and such. But there's that piece of it that these might have been terrifying if you watched them at release during uh, your adolescence. But the other piece of it is that I think that the first movie still holds up and has legitimate levels of, I wouldn't say terrifying, but there's a certain amount of discomfort that one has when watching it and an anticipation of concern. So I do think the first one still holds up. The second one's a, a little goofy. The third one I found, as you would describe, completely flat. It didn't, didn't really get out of the gate. There was way too many night scenes, and it was even hard to watch just because you couldn't tell what the hell's going on. I think this one, as it is trying to do maybe reboot itself and see a, a greater character than Leatherface, I felt that 
watching Matthew play that role was satisfying. There is a complete rejection of social norms and a, a certain freedom that might come from that, that he displayed that I think that one could step into and appreciate just that amount of ability to not care about how one is seen or censor one's behavior and just do what they want to do despite any level of self-censorship or feeling the need to fit within a social dynamic. This guy basically just did whatever came to mind to whoever he wanted to do it to, spitting on people, shoving his fingers in people's mouths, knocking people over the head with hammers. Like it was, it was just like whatever impulsive thing he felt like doing, he just did it. And I think that there's a certain freedom that that allows that. I don't know if that was the intention of the director to try and elicit that performance from uh, Matthew, but I think that that, that, that to me held value in, in just being able to experience that. So wasn't terrifying. It wasn't like a horrific experience, but it was if one was around an individual who acted like that without the need to self-censor or the need to be socially appropriate, that that could be terrifying because they're violating this social contract that is implicit in us living in society. And if everyone acted like that, what would the world be like? But if I experience someone acting like that, what would that experience be like for me? Likely terrifying because I don't, I don't walk in that same space. And so that person could exploit me quite quickly and easily if I was operating in a different set of rules. And to imagine, like I was saying, to live like that as he did, oh, that, that might be quite the experience. Yeah, but I think that argument applies to any movie that involves a, a slasher, any movie that involves a, a human, non-spiritual, non-extraterrestrial bad guy. They're, they're acting antisocially, and part of the shock and the terror is that we don't know how to behave in those situations. We expect different behavior. So, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I don't think the social contract violating way of appreciating this movie is particular to this movie. Yeah, that's true. But in other movies, and we're kind of generalizing a little bit, is that there's a there's at least a fundamental motivation that one might find within a character that's violating a social contract where it's like, well, they're trying to accomplish this or trying to do that. This guy, Matthew, he does isn't necessarily trying to accomplish anything. And his his, his destructive force goes against both himself. He's like cutting himself. He's uh, knocking his brother over the head with a hammer. His girlfriend, he's putting his boot on her throat and threatening her life. He bites the face off of uh, some high school student and then spits on Renee Zellweger. So it's like even himself is not a he's willing to violate even his own body. So there's there's nothing within his view or context that is sacred. And so that complete freedom, even from one's own body, is kind of encapsulated in his performance. How do you account then for his submissiveness to Rothman? Yeah, there's a, and so that's the spiritual element that would be part of the plot detail. There's this Illuminati, bigger social new world order that's taking over, and he is also part of that. So I guess, yeah, he is, he's a servant to that master. So there is a, there is a compromise that he's making within that, that model. Sounds like you're not a big fan of the TCM series, but uh, 
you know, I, I don't think that from kind of just a preview, I don't, I believe this is a, I think part four ends the exploration of these wild concepts. Maybe, maybe not. I can't say for sure. Cause I haven't seen many of the other ones. The other ones feel like reboots and remakes. So I, I don't know how creative maybe the other movies are, but uh, I've only seen one of the four that remain. So I, I can't speak on that. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing if it, if it blooms. Like I said, I, I do want to, I I'm open for a scare. I'm open for some holding of my hand above my eyes. And I think that they've got a winner in the sense of an eight foot tall man wearing a human skin face mask, wielding a chainsaw. They've got the cannibalism. They've got the creepy setting and the whole kind of zombie vibe of grandpa and animating dead folks at dinner and keeping all these trophies and whatnot. Like the pieces are there. It seems like somebody just needs to put it together and I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll happen to quote uh, Rothman. I'm, I'm sorry for this abomination. It was supposed to be a spiritual experience. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I, uh, gonna finish eating my uh, tuna fish out of a can and, uh, fall asleep to the crackling logs of TCM four in the bag. Yeah, that was a good talk. I, I feel better now. And uh, don't forget where those logs came from.